another edition of Tarvon Talks. I'm Dahl, and I'm joined by Thad and Diana, and today we're going to talk about Michael Livingston's The Origins of the Wheel of Time. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. We finally have it. We, we have it, finally. It's here. So excited to talk about it. <laughs> yes. Read through it, like, well, I've listened to the audiobook mostly, but... And then you're going to read through it again, right? Yeah, I'm going to take a little more time to read a little slower so I can take a little more of it in because it was so much and I have a tendency to get lost in thought when I listen to the audiobooks. So I may not have absorbed everything. But you absorbed something and that's what we're here to talk about. Yes, I've definitely absorbed some things. There's a lot of things in here that I also already knew, but I learned a little more detail about. I was going to say, I think of the three of us, you probably have the most experience with the author side of all of this. Like you mean just from my years of working with Jordan Kahn? Pretty much, yeah. And being in the fandom, yeah. Yeah, having spent a lot of time talking to Team Jordan and Harriet over the years, just from Jordan Kahn and other events that we've been at. And Maria is um Maria and Amy are both members of the Brown Aja. Although they don't post a lot, we honorarily added them to our Aja, so they always come to our toast at Jordan Kahn when they're there. And uh, I've gotten a lot of a lot of information just from those relationships, because every now and then we'll hear another story about Jim. Like one of my favorite ones, Maria said when she first started working for him, and her first job was to organize his notes, the notes that were used to write this book. And she said they were just piles of paper, and they weren't even all just like paper. Some of them were written on napkins. Some of them were photocopies of books from the library. Some of them were flyers that he'd gotten from museums and things like that. It was just stacks of random stuff. And she went through and alphabetized and put them in folders. And she found, like, royalty checks. Wow. <laughs> he'd just gotten in there. And she's like, you need to cash these. And he's like, oh, yeah, I guess I should. Oh, no. I wish I could have, you know, money sitting around that I didn't care about. But uh, anyway... Yeah, some of the, the history here, like learning about his childhood, I don't think I knew any of that, really. I didn't know he was he had so many siblings. I guess I did, because Wilson called himself the fifth of four, or something like that. The fourth of third. Fourth of third, yeah. But that was, that was cousins. That wasn't like siblings. Well, I'm sorry. He's the cousin. He's the cousin, and the, the brothers were, he was the fourth brother of three. Yeah, that's what it was, yes. But I didn't realize, like just how big their family was. I know I've heard the story about how Harriet and him met. I don't know anything about Jordan as a person, to be honest. Like, I, you know, bad fan. Don't keep up with the uh, the author. I don't think that's a bad fan. Uh, you know, you got your super fans who they know everything about everything about the author and stuff like that. Um, I guess in this case, Michael Livingston technically counts that now, considering he has written a book that we're here to talk about. Yeah. He is the super fan of super fans, for sure. Let's talk about his intro then. So like you, Doll, I had the audiobook because I'm getting the physical copy for Christmas and have promised the person who is giving it to me that I will wait until Christmas to actually physically read it. But because we're recording this podcast, I was like, I'm going to get it my hands on it another way. So I listened to the audiobook and hearing Michael Livingston's voice read that letter made me tear up every time he said, magic isn't real, magic isn't real, magic isn't real, right? And you can like hear the emotion in his voice. 
Oh, it's so good. If you've only read the physical copy of the book and not picked up the audiobook, I cannot recommend it enough. It is incredible. That's me. I, I do want to get the audiobook. Listen to it, Thad. It's incredible. And before that, the letter from Harriet and just hearing her voice because, you know, she's retired from cons now. Oh, does she record that portion? Mm-hmm. She did. It was so good to hear her voice. Mm-hmm. And now I'm going to cry. I'm with Harriet. It's a very sentimental. Yeah, it is. I expected the Harriet letter to make me cry, and it didn't. Um, and I don't know if that's because I was in public while listening to it, and I <laughs> generally don't cry in public. But the Michael Livingston letter made me sob, and then Robert Jordan's biography made me sob. So uh, they're both just so moving. And especially when he was talking about hearing about Robert Jordan's death and then the repercussions from it. Um, I was 17. 17 years old and Robert Jordan died. Um, and I like, it took me right back to that morning at the kitchen table with my parents showing me the obituary in the newspaper um, and took me right back to those emotions of, but I just discovered this series. I, I think I'd only been reading it for like three years at that point. Like I just discovered this series. I just fell in love with it. What's going to happen now? And like, I'm trying not to cry while we're recording, just talking about it. But it's like, it took me right back to that place. Oh gosh. Yeah. That was, that was a hard time. Like I'd been following the, the blog that he wrote and then Wilson did. I got the impression from that last few entries that it wasn't going well. And then, my husband, Robert, called me from work as I was still in bed. He's like, I'm sorry to tell you that Robert Jordan passed away. And I'm just like, <laughs> but yeah, I remember that day. And I remember the way everybody came together as a fandom. And then the very first Jordan Con. I think some of that was in the book as well. He talked about the recordings, even if he didn't mention them being played at, or the one that was being played. He mentioned the story of Wilson going out and buying the tapes and recording the dictation and all of that and that is just so hard to hear it is etched into my memory especially hearing that recording after hearing him previously talk at other stuff mm-hmm. and then hearing like it was hard it was brutal okay <laughs> we are all crying guys <laughs> you can you can show you 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 can you can tell how just tied we are to this uh mm-hmm. yeah book series and uh Michael Livingston definitely does not pull any punches very early on with the stuff within the book. Yeah. And then hearing some of the background from his childhood and through Vietnam, I don't think I had ever heard the story about how he killed the woman that ambushed him in Vietnam and how much that tied to the whole thing with Rand, keeping track of all the women that died from his hand. Yeah, for me, that was a very, like, whoa moment. That whole Vietnam portion just tore me up reading about all that like i had heard some of the stories the machine gunner story i'd heard him tell that before some of the other stories i hadn't or maybe it didn't hit the same way as it did this time just knowing and connecting it back to the books and basically writing out his ptsd in these books through rand mm-hmm. these books are a lot of therapy for sure but in a good way yeah in a good way though it's a, it's a very good depiction and i never made that connection before yeah, because in chapter three, I think they even bring it up when they're talking about the binaries of the wheel and stuff like that. How specifically when they're making the point of why does Rand have to be a man and stuff like that? And 
they just start talking about, you can relate it back to his Vietnam stories about all of this and specifically that it's fixing broken masculinity. Yeah. It was really interesting. So uh, Michael Kramer, I believe that's his last name, correct? Mm -hmm. Uh, It read the biography portions and then Kate Redding read the glossary. When Michael Kramer was quoting Robert Jordan, especially when he was talking about, I'm not a hero, I'm not a hero. He was using the same voice that he uses for Matt. And I don't know if that influenced my perception of it, but those quotes, the I'm not a hero, I didn't, I just did what I needed to do. I was just in the right place at the right time. Felt so Matt-like to me, which was so interesting that like you can, like Robert Jordan, I believe in the past had said that all women have a facet of Harriet, but it was so clear that all of the men, especially the main boys, all have some facet of Robert Jordan in them. Um, And it was really, really clear in that portion of the audiobook, especially. Yeah, I think Matt literally said that line at some point. Mm-hmm. I'm not a bloody hero. I'm not a bloody hero. I just did what I had to do. That's basically his self-title. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I don't think I realized he played football. Yeah, it was interesting to hear how sporty he was. Yeah, that was kind of surprising too. I wasn't expecting that. I like that in the biography portion that when he was doing it for sports, I guess he was on a sports scholarship, but you know, he had been thinking about, oh, I want to write, I want to write. And he was doing so poorly in school. That's what made him just go join the army. It made sense too, because his dad had also been in the military and his grandpa was in the military. Right. And I think that was probably a factor in that decision. Yeah, absolutely. He came from a family where they had a history of service. So it made sense as well. I think it was in the previous episode in the slog episode where you guys talked about the specifically the shooting down of the um ICB, not ICBM, that's an intercontinental RPG. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> wow, that would have been impre- really impressive. That would, that would be even more impressive. I do not know anything about the military or war or any weapons, so I apologize, people who do. But where he shot the grenade basically out from the helicopter, and it was super cool to have that story then like told in more detail and like yeah. kind of confirmed. Yeah. In the book. I listened to the slog episode and then that portion basically back to back. And that was very fun for me in particular. <laughs> when I heard that story, I was like, oh, oh, I'm sorry for the spoilers. <laughs> I know he was going to bring that one up. Obviously. Once I started reading about Vietnam, I knew it was just time before it showed up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. It was one of his biggest stories or tall tales or stories. So I didn't make it up. I swear I heard him tell it. <laughs> you clearly did not make it up. <laughs> nope. But uh, when you get to the, the how he actually wrote the book, I've known from Brandon's lectures that he's done at Jordan Han that Jordan was considered a discovery writer. But it, like just seeing the discovery process and the way things shaped and changed and like the story that they, he was going to tell at first, like the first time he went through the notes is so much different and it's it's crazy how much it changed it is crazy i have been trying to write a fantasy book for a long time and also love editing books and like any fiction whatsoever really um and so i'm currently in the process of editing a fantasy book and hearing about the process was very, very fascinating for me from those two facets. And I took a lot of his process and how it changed and evolved over time. And I have actually been 
using some of those notes essentially to the friend whose book I'm editing, just saying like, things can grow, things can change, things can evolve. Just because you've written them in this draft does not mean it has to be that way. And really like kind of encouraging like a a fluid evolution. I also, when I was younger and trying to write, really wanted to imitate Jordan's process, not even not knowing what his process was, knowing that like, I wanted to write a fantasy book like this one because I loved it so much. And now knowing what his process is, I'm like, I don't even know that I have the mental fortitude to go through all of that. It is insane. Insane. I've only gotten through the first portion of the Jordan at work. But just the three examples that they give on his biggest inspirations, just the white goddess alone, which I had never heard of before this book. I I didn't even know that existed. The other two I had heard of, but um, with the way that he kind of reinvents and squishes everything together, like we we always knew that it was, everything was always an amalgamation of, you know, different cultures and stuff kind of stripped down a little bit, but not to this extent, at least for this guy right here. Yeah, like a lot of the source material, like I'm not as familiar with, like I know Arthurian legend to a degree. I've read Once and Future King. I have not read more Arthur or any of the others. I'm familiar somewhat with the some of the, the Shinto gods and stuff like that, but not to the degree that he was. And it's just amazing how much detail and like, yeah, I knew that the names were like mishmashes of Arthurian legend and other cultures, but not to the degree that he went to. Like, I didn't catch half of the references I thought I had. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, I thought, oh, I've got most of them. But no, because I get even further down, like, taking Galad, for example, him being Galahad, but also, like, sort of twisting the Galahad thing. He's not Lancelot's son or anything, but seeing like how he took the Galahad story and twisted it and pulled it in and changed it and used it as a allegory almost. Like, no, he doesn't like allegory. It's more applicable. But to show you how faith is a good thing to have, but allowing faith to twist you into something darker and not just glad, obviously, was the incorruptible one, but through the white cloaks, showing us what true faith looks like versus what you had in, like, Joshim Jotcham Cheridan? Cheridan, yeah. Jotcham Cheridan. The corruption that fate can take. And I'm like, that was like a lot deeper than I ever thought it was. Yeah, it was fascinating. I had, like you said, and like you know, I'd never heard of The White Goddess. Now I really want to read it. I kind of do too. Even though it's like, they made it very clear that it is essentially... It is like a fever dream of a story. It's also essentially pseudoscience for mythology. It's good to know going into that because it is a very like tantalizing myth that there would be one monomyth, but that the monomyth would be rooted in something vaguely Western is, you know, a very like Western way of looking at things that definitely might might not be true. Um, But I really want to read The White Goddess now. I also i have never really cared about the Arthurian legends very much, despite being a fantasy fan and being an English major in college. I sort of like read them because I had to. Well, you've never been a 15-year-old boy. That is true. (laughs) Um, But I do kind of now want to read La Morte d'Arthur. I read a feminist version of the Arthurian legends whose name I cannot remember off the top of my head. There's so many of them. Yeah, there's tons of them. And, you know, one of the other um, books was basically this crazy guy in the 1400s 
basically just took all of the legends and tried to weave them together into like one story. And we've even had a modern movie made off of that, which is the Excalibur movie. So that's the closest common translation of it that we could possibly see. I think another one that really surprised me on that was the way that Nynaeve was going to be both the Morgay's character and I'm trying to, um, I guess she was both Morgay's and the Lady of the Lake. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't think of the other the other name off the top of my head. Yeah, so like she was gonna turn dark and then <laughs> and trap Morgay's in a mountain or not Morgay's Moiraine. Yeah, I'm glad that that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be a wildly different naive. Also, that Lan at one point was Galad's father and like a secret mm-hmm. lover of Morgay's, and like that would have been wild. <laughs> so crazy so crazy that would have been something else for sure yeah speaking of lan i feel like a complete idiot and i never connected lan and lancelot (laughs) same here that's that's the thing that killed me is when i looked that up in the glossary it was just like i i picked up archer hawkwing almost immediately Mm -hmm. but lan salat no not even close they even talk about specifically in the book how uh jordan said that most people didn't even pick up that archer hawkwing is King Arthur until like three books in. Which is crazy, because that that is one of the names that is the most clear, I think. Yeah, it's the most obvious. Because it's Pandrag. Like, yeah, Pandrag. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's the Pandragon. Like, that's Arthur. Like, yeah, I got all of the, the Morgasa, the Egwene, Merlin, like all of those references I got, but it didn't get Lancelot. I only knew Nynaeve just because they gave it to us earlier this year. Uh, yeah, I, that Nynaeve's name I didn't quite catch, but all the other ones, but Lancelot and Lan, <laughs> it's probably the almost outside of Pendrag. It's like the most literal translation, and it went right over my head. The one that I did not catch for anybody was all of the Merlins that are in Wheel of Time. So there's Ah Merlin. Like, hello? <laughs> hey, Merlin. Never got that. <laughs> yeah. Tom Marilyn. Never never got that his last name was was Merlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Moiraine is... I think that they said that she has, like, a son Merlin. Uh, there was something in her name. Morgana Le Fay is what she's... Yeah, uh, she's Morgana. Yeah. But she is a Merlin as well because they talk about how her and Tom, the reason that, like... Of meta, the meta reason that they get together at the end of the book, which I think I. Well, it does say that he ultimately abandoned the Merlin parallel. Yeah, but she she is she is a Merlin in some ways because it is a union. Her and Tom getting married is a union of two Merlins, and so it brings the Merlin back together. I think it might have been when he was considering Moiraine to be the Amerlin because she was a Merlin. I think you're right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're right. You're right on that. Um, there was like, there's at least one other Merlin reference that, and I've understood literally zero of them. <laughs> I also didn't catch that Tom was Tom Doherty, and I feel very silly for saying this, but I've never caught that Tom Doherty and Tor. Like, I didn't realize that was how Tor was created, and that's where the name Tor came from. I feel like I already knew that one because I feel like. Tom Doherty mentioned that at a Jordan Con long ago when we were in a panel talking about real life uh, connections to the Wheel of Time. And that's where we first learned about 
there was one that was revealed on that panel that made everybody in the room go, wait, what? And now I can't even remember what it is. I, I, I feel like one of them was that Jordan just took like a Chef Boyardee can and did something with it. And that one came from Alan. So I don't know. I don't know if he was just messing with people. <laughs> That's entirely possible. That's not in the books. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't remember seeing Chef Boyardee in there. There was one that and I'm trying to think of who I was talking to recently. And it may have been somebody in live, like not Tarvon life that said something about always wondering if Far Madden was related to Far from the Madden crowd. And it is confirmed in this book. Although I think I told that person that it most likely was because that's just how Jordan worked and where he got his names from. But if you haven't ever read that book, it is a, that is a trip. (laughs) (laughs) I guess while we're talking about glossary entries, do we just want to go ahead and talk about it? Yeah. Yeah. Let's dive in. So when we interviewed Michael Livingston, he said he didn't want to ask what entry we were most excited about because he didn't want to disappoint us. And then, and that made me very worried because the entry that I was most excited about was the entry for Amoresu, the hero for the horn. Um, I am, in addition to a Wheel of Time nerd, also an anime and Japanese nerd. Um, and was right around the same time that I was reading Wheel of Time, got introduced to the idea of Japanese mythology and Amaterasu, the sun goddess. And so when Amaresu shows up in the books, that was when I first, when it first clicked for me, like, oh, oh, these books are like our world. This is Amaterasu. The, all of the heroes for the horn have allegories in our world. That is so cool. And like took my appreciation of Wheel of Time to like a whole other level. And so I was really worried that Amaresu wasn't going to be in the glossary. And then she was. And it's like one of the first entries when you listen to it just alphabetically. And I was like, oh, there she is. And he mentions Amaterasu. And I was so pleased. And that's, that is my favorite entry in the glossary for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you're also a big Okami fan, huh? I am, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Anything that's like even vaguely Japanese in, this, in Wheel of Time, I'm like, aha. There you are. Mm-hmm. I see you. There's a lot of it. The Hidori, all of that. So, uh, so, so basically, the northeastern cultures in Randland are, are are your bag. They are. They are my bag. They are my bag. Although I really, really like um, the Domani, but that's a whole other conversation. Domani. The Eridaman and oh, there. I I know they they sound so similar to like the Dom. Demane. Demane, yeah. yeah. I'm like, are you talking about slaves? No, no, no. <laughs> not not into that part. Although I do okay. have a very weird fascination with Sean Chan, but not in a like I like their culture way. Just in a I'm fascinated I by mean, their culture a, way. It is a fascinating culture. Yeah. In a, in a morbid very, way. Very morbid way. No, the the culture in Eridaman, um, I find very fascinating. But anyway, that's a whole other side conversation. Yeah. Uh, like speaking of the heroes of the horn, I was fascinated to realize that one of them was John Henry. That I didn't get to that mm-hmm. when I read it. I've he- I've heard that, but I I never knew it was if it was actually confirmed or not. It was kind of like a speculation thing. Yeah, well, that it's in there. That was confirmed, or at least it's in the li- the entries mentions it. So I'm assuming it's in the notes somewhere. I'm just going to take Origins of the Wheel of Time and everything in the glossary is canon now. So, I mean, I think it is. Like, it's all well, from the notes. Yep, so. It is. Yep. So, it's all canon. It is the most official thing we're going to get yep. on it. So, if it's in the glossary, it is confirmed. Unless you go to actually go to the University of South Carolina and read the notes themselves. Or not 
It's the University of Charleston. Yes. I do want to do that someday. I want to do it too sometime. I told Fenya at one point when we're going to Jordan Conchi and I are going to do a road trip out. Probably not this time, but maybe sometime in the future. We should do that and do like an on-location recording. Oh, that would be amazing. <laughs> also, I, I do hate that a lot of the notes are sealed until 2037, so we have some time to wait on some of the notes. Yeah, but a good portion of them would be there, and it would just be really cool to see. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It would be. I think for me, I had two entries that I was kind of looking forward to see. I knew one of them was going to appear, but I didn't know if the other one was. But the first one was the Ogier. I I just, I love the Ogier. So that was one of the first ones I went to. And I, I liked the line that they were basically the dwarves of Randland at first, is how they were described in the notes. So a very mountainous people and stuff. And it just kind of grew out from there. It's so interesting that they came from the I Ching. That, that's like... Wild. Mm-hmm. Like, I need to find my copy of the teaching now and read it because I don't remember any of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the wildest part is how it says in here that they practiced ritual cannibalism in the fashion of, like, the Maori. And I was like, what? <laughs> that was interesting. I'm glad that one got kind of left out. Yeah, glad, glad we don't have cannibalistic ogier. I mean, how, how do we know them Shanshan ogier aren't like that? Valid. A valid question. Again, just continue to be fascinated by the Shawshank culture. <laughs> this is sort of a tangent, but like the ritual cannibalism is not like the same as the myths that we get in popular culture, but it is a... That's why it's kind of a ritual, yeah. I mean, it's literal, um, but it's more of the ashes are baked in a cake and you eat it as a part of, um, have a little part of the person you loved inside of you. It's not like they're ripping in the flesh and eating it. So, oh, okay, got it. That's much more. So that Diana, we're learning something today. We are learning something today. Thank you, doll. Because I didn't know that. I learned that from Caitlin Doherty. He's a mortician on YouTube, <laughs> <laughs> and she did a whole whole thing on it. And she ate. She actually ate one. I think that was interesting to learn because, like, it sounds gruesome, but it's actually really beautiful when you learn more about it. That is actually really beautiful. Yeah. Now the other entry for me was one I was like, I don't know if this character is going to get an entry, but it's probably one of my favorite non-main cast characters, and that's Bale Domon. I have, since the moment he appeared, I was like, this is my guy. This is who I aspire to be in life. And it's literally Domon. Doman. Yeah, Doman. And I was like, oh my gosh. Because <laughs> he's chubby. Or not chubby, but he looks big. He's chubby, and his name is for... To, is for to bail water from a boat with like a bucket. And I was just like, wow. All right. That's very literal. Very literal. It's just like, you know what, Bill Doman? He's a simple guy. I like it. <laughs> simple guy, simple name. <laughs> love it. I love Bill Doman. Every time he shows up, I'm always like, it's going to be a good time. <laughs> I was surprised by Hinderstep, like being a black cauldron. That's not a connection I would have ever guessed. That was really fascinating to me because like I loved that movie as a child, even though I recognize it has very little in common with the actual book. It's the name of the town is derived from the Gundestrup Cauldron, which is said to bring people back to life or restore people. That's interesting. It is super interesting. That actually reminds me of the, there is a section kind of jumping out of the glossary for a second. There is a section that talks about Tamondred and, and the, the fusion of those two characters 
uh, or the the how Mesm Tiny and Damon Dread were one character and then they were not. Um and that a possible explanation for all of the like bubbles of evil and the like ripples was him just continuously using um Balefire over in Shara. And that made me come be closer to being at peace with Demon Dread not being Mazram Taim and just being doing God only knows what over in Shara. Uh, I was like, okay, because we never really get an explanation in the books for the bubbles of evil or for the weird things that are going on with reality other than just like, oh, it's the Dark One's touch on the world. I thought the whole Balefire thing was mentioned at some point. The threads of the Age of Lace were starting to come unraveled. They do, but they talk about it so much later than they start happening. It's pretty late in the series. And so I like that explanation or possible explanation for what was going on ahead of time. I found that to be quite a neat little bow to wrap on everything. It's definitely nice to have that. Yep. Speaking of the end of the book, should we talk about Nakomi? We're here. We may as well. We may as well. We knew we weren't going to get much because there wasn't a lot said about it. But I think the most surprising thing for me was that it was Sanderson who named her. I think that was the biggest thing for me was that it wasn't a named character from Robert Jordan. It was, oh, Sanderson came up with the name and then the whole scene with Avienda was added in by him. It was kind of one of those little creative liberties he took, I guess, to give just a touch more context to the character at the end. I think the biggest thing for me was it's an avatar of the creator, which I kind of always like figured it could have been something like that, but you kind of want to dig for that meaning because there's so much hidden and everywhere that you think we all overthunk it because there was um, Shadar Haran. Well, you thought it was Shadar Haran? No, 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 no. That we had Shadar Haran, which was the avatar for the Dark One. Oh, okay. So I don't, you know, I'm sure people out there were just like, I knew it with Nakomi, but it's like, I never thought to think, oh, well, you know, the Dark One's got his avatar. Obviously, the creator has an avatar as well. That was sort of the conclusion we came to when we talked about it, except we decided to project that and we made up our own, which I'm going to stick to. (laughs) I like our fan theory better, (laughs) honestly. It's Harriet. It's Harriet. It's Harriet. I also thought that at one point fans asked Sanderson, like, oh, is she an avatar of the creator? And he was like, no. I probably did too, but... And so, and like, yes, okay, I guess he's like, she is an avatar of the creator, but not. And like that, the entry for Nakomi is very clearly written by Sanderson, or there's at least like a clear Sanderson quote, because the tone in that entry is totally different than the tone in basically any other entry. And... Like, he's like, oh, she is an avatar of the creator, but not, but she is. And I was like, okay, so I guess she kind of isn't. But it, it just felt very, like, nitpicky and quibbly in a way that doesn't really fit with the rest of any other character. And the way that any other character is, like, discussed or, or named or anything. I hate to say that I am actually was actually pretty disappointed by her entry. Of course, as fans, we had built it all up in our heads and we had made it this big thing and like we had our fan theories about it. But in particular, because it was confirmed that it was basically one of the like uh, original fan theories that had been shot down, I think I found pretty disappointing. I also think that obviously wasn't, wasn't Jordan's initial intention for it because Sanderson specifically says... I decided that this woman was the creator's version of Shidar Haran. So mm-hmm. that's kind of, uh, Sanderson sees it as not an avatar, but a counterpart to Shadar Haran, which may or may not be an avatar of uh, the Dark One, but just, just a mere vessel in which to convey message, which 
you know, I consider that to be an avatar of, you know, a deity. That's kind of how that works. That is indeed how that works, usually. Yeah, <laughs> that is exactly how that works. Like, that is literally what that means. Yes. Yes, that is literally what that means. <laughs> but I guess Sanderson didn't see it in that light. So all we know is that the original kind of core of this character is, you know, the person that appears to Rand in the epilogue. And then everything else is Sanderson going, here's a little bit more so you're not confused, which only confused everybody more. Exactly. Yeah, there are, there are some choices that Sanderson made, especially in the final two books that I have quibbles with. And this is I, this is just going on the list. So, yeah, I found it very frustrating. I, I do think it would have been nice to just have Nakomi without a name show up to Rand at the end of A Memory of Light in the same way that the creator talked to Rand at the end of The Eye of the World. I think that that would have been a beautiful bookend. Um, but, you know, whatever. That's not the book that we got. And Sanderson did finish the books. And for that, we will be eternally grateful. Quibbles or no quibbles. <laughs> The entry that I really liked also that I was very surprised by was the name of the Trolloc bands. It had literally never occurred to me that they are all named for supernatural evil creatures. And so that when he kept bringing up the Trolloc bands like earlier on and there's like just like little lines, I was like, why does he keep talking about like, who cares? <laughs> and then like got to the Trolloc band entry and I was like, uh, oh, <laughs> this is cool. This is very cool. Like individually, I had to be like, oh, yes, obviously that's a golem and that's a goblin. But it wasn't until I saw them or heard them all back to back and back. I'm like, they're literally all fantasy or mythological creatures of the dark. Like, oh, wow, I did not catch that before. Oops. Yeah, Bonsheen was Banshee. Deval was Devil. D Daimon demon mm -hmm. it's like wow he went very phonetic yep <laughs> um uh cobalt um gnomon i still know so used to the little garden gnomes i forget <laughs> that gnomes are actually evil creatures in most mythology <laughs> like oh they're not just little cute things you put in your garden <laughs> they are over the garden wall gnomes <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the evil names are like that more death Mordeth, yeah. Mordeth. Mordeth. That one, that one I knew because I am in the first book. I am constantly like, Matt, why are you taking a dagger from a man called Mordeth? Mordeth. Come on, Matt. <laughs> Matt, use, use your one brain cell, please. Um, but then <laughs> uh, also Machin Sheen is a machine of sin. thought that was super cool. Um, just oh, So many like that. That one was pretty good, yeah. too. So, so many like that. That was just like, oh, oh this is awesome. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk about the end of the audiobook? Yeah. Yeah, talk about, you were going to talk about the Rosamund Pike thing, right? Yeah. Okay, I'll let you guys drive. I know nothing about that. Okay, cool. cool. At the end of the audiobook, and if there's no other reason for you guys to get the audiobook than this, it's totally worth it. There is an interview with Rosamund Pike where she discusses the recording process for her re-recording The Eye of the World and The Great Hunt. And it is fascinating to like hear her process and like as an actress kind of go through talking about it and talking about the different intonations and how she reads and the different notes that she makes to herself. But absolutely the coolest part is when she starts talking about her voices that she uses for the main characters and she starts talking about them in the voices that she uses for the main characters. And so she talks about how like, 
she like has like Matt's voice and he's very playful and blah blah blah. And then like Rand is so like stoic and, or not stoic is like but more thoughtful. And then Perrin is so stoic and has a deep voice. It's so cool. And she does it like back to back to back in like the space of like five minutes. I had to pause the audiobook and just like fangirl to my husband who was like, I don't care. <laughs> Yeah, I have to go back and listen to it again because I got lost in that part and it was just, it took over and I was just stuck in the world listening to her be these characters. I want to go back and listen to it again, but like you said, it is well worth it and if you need to, and it's well worth your Audible credit. Like right now you can get two credits for your free trial if you haven't ever done it, so that's worth that. Or you can, what is the one you use? Or you can use Libro FM, Libro.fm. It's also available on there. And it's either $30 or you can sign up for $15 for a month and get one credit and you can get it for $15. So like, isn't well worth the $15 either way. Yeah. We are in no way sponsored by any of these no. services. <laughs> none of, none they, of them are sponsors. Just we're no, big fans. Unless they want to. <laughs> we're just readers. <laughs> unless they want to. <laughs> we're open to sponsorships um she also talked about tom and she like kind of i couldn't tell if she was doing it on purpose or on accident but she like slipped into like a semi-irish accent which is the accent that she uses for tom when she reads the books yeah. um and then she tried to switch to bail Dolmon, who is a welsh accent she couldn't quite hit it and so she had to like go she has this like mnemonic that she uses in order to get into bail Dolmon's voice and she had to like say it and then she could go into his voice i have been also listening to the rosamund pike audiobooks and so it was very cool to just like hear her process i love hearing about people's process i am a process person tell me your process for doing anything any day of the week i'll listen forever i am thinking about i have i already have the eye of the world with kate redding and michael kramer but i'm thinking about using my other credit to get rosamund pike's version i really like her versions yeah. by by all of the wheel of time yeah well i don't have enough money to keep Credits, <laughs> right <laughs> it's, it's a lot of money for audiobooks it is. it is the audiobooks are really expensive um yeah. really really like they're it's like 50 bucks they're kind of it's well, rough yeah. or you get audible credits or true Libra or whatever it's the way to do it but like yeah, yeah when you're done it's still a hundred dollars her version of the great or the great hunt that's book two the great hunt Mm -hmm. is well worth it just for her version of the Sean Chan alone um, mm. because she does the Southern accent and it makes me say, think like, are we going to get the Southern accent in the show? Yeah. <laughs> I know we've talked about that before. We've talked about but... that. We want Southern accents. Yeah, we want them. We want them badly. <laughs> real, real Southern accents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Give them to us. Give them to us. <laughs> we, we can be Sean Chan if you need it. <laughs> I can't. The only accent well, I can do is a Valley Girl accent. Thanks, California. <laughs> but we, I mean, me and Thad and very, you know, and okay, that's our Southerners, isn't it? <laughs> I think that's the three of us. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for listening to our talk about origins of the Wheel of Time. If you have any questions or topics you'd like to hear us talk about, feel free to send us an email and producer TVT at gmail.com or you can join us on tarvalon.net in our general forums we have a special thread called ask tarvalon talks pinned at the top of the page we also have a brand new discord channel in our discord server thank you for joining us and we'll talk to you soon